Morning. If you have your Bibles, your apps, anything, we're going to be in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. We continue in thinking through and trying to consider uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You guys can be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all as we come together once again to worship the Lord on a Sunday morning. Uh, my name is David, and I am the church planting resident here at Doxa. Uh, we are finally edging up towards the finish line for my family's time here at Doxa. Uh, that, that finish line is slowly starting to appear on the horizon here as we prepare to move to Massachusetts next summer to begin the work of planting a church. And I, I want to say thank you to all of you who are praying for us, to all of you who are supporting us financially as we just continue to move forward with this church plant. I know Many of you, as I'm looking out here, many of you are already signed up for this, but we actually send out a monthly newsletter with prayer requests and just sort of things that are going on with the ministry. Uh, if you're not signed up for this, I would love to get you signed up. Uh, more than anything, just so that you can be praying for us, uh, so you can have an idea of what's going on. Uh, so if you're not signed up, please see me at the end of the service, or you know what, you could even just go to the Connect uh, stand back there, write your name down on some piece of paper, I'll find it, and make sure you get signed up for that. Uh, we, we sincerely need your prayers. So even if you're not signed up, you're not receiving those prayer requests, please pray for us because we, we really need it. Um, I was reading something recently that actually pointed out that New England as a whole, this is just fascinating to me, New England as a whole could actually be identified as an unreached people group because less than 2% of the population identifies as Christian. So as you're praying for people in our community who don't know Christ, my ask is that you will lift up New England as well. Lift up the people of New England, pray that God would, would save some. Well, before we pray and we look at our text this morning, I have another request of you all. Uh, we know from scripture that every aspect of our lives are to be lived as an act of worship to God. The Apostle Paul tells us to present our bodies to God as living sacrifices, as a spiritual act of worship. And we believe that Sunday, the Sunday morning gathering of believers is especially significant for us spiritually and in terms of our worship. Every single part of our gathering, Lord willing, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is creating a sense of worship within all of us. From the music, to the sermon, to our prayer together, communion, even the way that we greet one another, we want to be a worshipful people. And this includes how we listen to a sermon. I said I have another ask of you, and here it is. My ask is that you will listen to what's said over the next few minutes 
so that your heart may be fueled in its worship of God. I don't say that because I have the power to do that. I absolutely have no power or no ability to create that within you, but I know that the Holy Spirit, he can and he will do that for you. So don't just listen to get information. Don't just listen in order to critique what's being said. Brothers and sisters, listen so that you might worship. My prayer is that the Lord will use what's said today to create a heart of worship within all of us. You know, we want to be a worshipful people here at Doxa who seek the Lord, who cry out to the Lord in prayer, people who are dependent on the Lord for everything in our lives. That's, that's who we want to be as a church, and I believe that's where we're going as a church. And it starts with our hearts and lives being filled with a posture of worship to God. Why don't we pray together? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, but let's, let's all offer these prayers in our own way to the Lord. I'm going to pray, and then we will continue in our worship as we look at God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of being able to call you Father. How blessed we are that you hear us when we pray to you. You care about the ins and the outs of our lives. You care about the things that trouble us. God, you care about the things that bring us joy. Oh, what a wonderful Father you are. Thank you for showing us mercy and compassion. We certainly do not deserve that from you, God. Thank you that you pursued us while we were still very, very far from you. We thank you for Christ's perfect sacrifice on behalf of all who trust in you. God, thank you for the salvation. Thank you for the assurance that we have in Christ. God, we wanna pray specifically this morning for the campus of Coastal Carolina. God, there are so many there who need to experience your grace. We pray for the students, for the professors that do know you. Father, we pray that you would give them a sense of boldness, a sense of courage for you. God, we pray that you would help them to know that your spirit is with them. Wherever they go in the, in the classroom or the dorms or wherever they might be, your spirit is present there with them. I pray that they would sense that. I can't imagine how difficult it is to live as a Christian on a college campus. So God, again, I pray that the presence of your spirit would be real and tangible for them. God, we pray for the ministries on campus that are engaging in kingdom building work. God, we pray for Koinonia, for Young Life, for Crew, for BCM, all the other ministries that are at Coastal. God, help them to be faithful, but we ask also that you would let them see fruit. We pray for conversions. We pray that students would grow in their faith. Father, you are able to do more than we ask or think. So we pray that you would do that for your glory. God, change that campus for your glory. Lord, we pray for Coastway Church and their first worship service is taking place on Coastal's campus this morning at 11. Bless Jeremy as he preaches. Be with their team as they minister. Lord, we thank you for bringing more people to the Grand Strand who are committed to gospel work. That is a blessing. We thank you for that. Lord, we now wanna pray for our time together. May your word 
May your spirit breathe fresh life into all of us. Father, I need your help as I preach. What I, what I have to say, it really doesn't matter. God, people need to hear from you this morning. So we pray that you would do that. Speak to us through your word. Quiet our, our minds and quiet our hearts so that we can hear from and experience you with us. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tell me if you've heard phrases like this before. I'm just living my best life. My five-year-old, she actually used that phrase to describe our Pomeranian yesterday. She said, Kobe, he's just living his best life right now. <laughs> what about this? I'm sure you've heard people say this. We are just so blessed. Or what about, I'm just living the good life. We've all heard phrases like that before. But what exactly do they mean? What are we getting at? What are we trying to communicate when we use phrases like that? When my brother calls me and I'm on hole 12 of the golf course and I've got a pretty good score going, which is very rare, but let's just say that's happening. He calls me and I say, I'm just living the good life right now. What am I even really saying? What are we communicating when we use phrases like this? What even is the good life or the best life or the blessed life? If you're not really sure how to answer that question, you are not alone. People have been literally wrestling with how do I answer this since the very beginning? Books, conferences, philosophers have all tried to answer that question or, or at least one similar to it of what is the good life? Even Socrates, the famous philosopher, he said, not life, but a good life is to be chiefly valued. So what comes to your mind when you think of the good life? Maybe you think about having total autonomy in your existence. No one, no thing, perhaps even no God to answer to. For others, it could be financial stability or material comfort or unlimited pleasure. Maybe it's children or a spouse or just freedom from suffering. We recently began a sermon series on Jesus's famous Sermon on the Mount. And this is the first of five major teaching blocks of Jesus in the book of Matthew. And this sermon is arguably the most famous sermon of all time. I remember being in 11th grade English class and looking at the literary structure of this sermon, trying to understand why does Matthew present Jesus's teaching the way that he does? I remember absolutely nothing from that class other than the fact that we did that. And I hope over the next few months as we go through this, you all will remember much more than I remember from 11th grade English class. Now what, what Matthew has recorded for us in his gospel and in the Sermon on the Mount, this is not all that Jesus said in his sermon. It's probably more of the highlights. Jesus likely preached much longer than this when he, when he delivered this sermon. And what we have here, it just takes us a couple of minutes to read. So we know that this can't be everything, but it is key points that highlight the overall theme of Jesus's teaching. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching on the nature of life in the kingdom of God. 
I'm gonna repeat that. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching on the nature of life in the kingdom of God. This isn't just about ethics, although there are ethical implications that come from Jesus' teaching here. We're gonna see this throughout the series. No, Jesus is teaching on life in the kingdom of God, both in the present kingdom as it exists now and in the future kingdom. There's present and future tense language here that lets us know that in some sense, Jesus is talking about the here and now, but he's also talking about the future. And this morning, we're looking at four verses that make up Jesus' sermon introduction known as the Beatitudes. We looked at the first three last week. We'll look at four this morning, and then we'll finish with the eighth one next week in addition to a verse that's very closely related to it. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you've likely heard that phrase, the Beatitudes. Maybe you've even heard a sermon series on it before. But if if you're not familiar with that term, you should know that the word comes from a Latin phrase that was used to describe a state of blessedness. And it actually goes all the way back to one of the Latin translations of the Bible. So right here in his sermon introduction to one of the most famous sermons of all time, Jesus is talking about the blessed life. Or if I could put it in the vernacular of our day, Jesus is talking about the good life. Now I wanna offer a quick thought for you all on the word that's translated as blessed or blessed uh, in the verses that we're looking at because I think this is, is, this is significant for us to keep in our minds as we read through this. Blessed is a, is a good word to convey the Greek meaning um, but I think it, it needs a little bit of help for us to feel the, the full context, the full meaning of what Jesus is saying. The word blessed has been so watered down in our context. You can use it to describe your Pomeranian puppy. You can use it to uh, describe you getting an A on your biology test. Or you can describe yourself as blessed when you have a new baby. Um, we know that these are all very different things. When Jesus says blessed here, it's as if he is congratulating the people. It's like he's telling them they've won some kind of a reward. Again, we need to really feel the weight of what Jesus is saying. He's not flippantly offering some kind of blessing to the people. The Jews who were here listening to Jesus, they might have immediately thought of the picture of blessing described in Psalm 1. And speaking about the person who's blessed, the psalmist writes, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. That's sort of the picture that would have been in people's minds as they're hearing blessed. But Jesus, very quickly, he changes the imagery with what's said. The congratulatory blessings that Jesus is speaking, they look remarkably different from what the people would have expected. So what I want us to try to do this morning is I want us to just see if we can sit underneath if we can feel the weight and the magnitude of what Jesus is saying to the people. They would have been shocked at what they're hearing. We can imagine people giving audible gasps at each one of these statements here. So I have my own points. I have my own observations that I want us to see. But more than anything, I want us all together to just marvel at the points that Jesus is making in verses 6 to 9 of Matthew chapter five. Look at me again, 
Or look with me at verse six here. Let's look at it again. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. You know, the pursuit of righteousness, it's not really a popular thing nowadays. Even within church culture, I wonder how many people you come across who appear to hunger and thirst for righteousness. When Jesus said these words, he was talking to people who knew what real hunger and real thirst felt like. I don't know how many people in here have ever been really, really hungry or really, really thirsty, but if you've ever been there, you know you will do almost anything to meet those needs. Moldy, smelly food looks delicious when you're starving, when you're really hungry. Dirty, nasty water, it looks so satisfying when you're thirsty, when you haven't had a drink in a couple of days. Think about how you feel after a day of fasting or how you feel after a a day of yard work out in the hot South Carolina sun. The imagery that Jesus is using here is powerful. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness is an important word in scripture and it's, it's really important in Matthew's gospel. You remember when we went through the book of Romans, I guess that was, what, about a year ago, um, Paul's letter, the concept of righteousness of God and how we can be made righteous, those, those were really big themes throughout the book. And here, righteousness is being used to describe a desire for God's revealed will. Righteousness is being used to describe a desire for God's revealed will. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's saying, blessed are you who look at your life and you look at the world around you and you see that things are not as they should be. You see things are out of whack. Things are not being conformed to the will of God and you desire for that to be made right. You desire for things to be made right. Blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. I know that we have people in this room today who they look at their life, they look at the core of their being and they deeply desire for God's will to be done. They desire to be in a relationship of complete trust of complete obedience to God. They desire for sin to be gone in their life. You know, that's one of the things that I look forward to most about heaven. No more more wrestling with the sinful nature that I have. Friend, if that's you, if you look at your life and you look at the world around you and you long for God's perfect will to be done, the same way you long for food in your belly when you haven't eaten in a couple of days, or you long for a drink when you're so, so thirsty, if that's you, Jesus looks at you and he calls you blessed. What's strange about that is that doesn't feel like a blessed state of being. It doesn't feel like we're living the good life if we have a deep desire or desires within us that aren't being met. It feels more like a state of brokenness. Anything described with hunger and thirst associated with it, that doesn't seem to be describing the good life. But those who exhibit a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, at least on some level, they demonstrate that they have a desire for the righteous one. 
Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness have their hunger and thirst quenched in the person of Jesus. He is the living water. He is the bread of life. Church, Jesus quenches our longing for righteousness in the present and he creates within us a deeper longing to see every piece of our lives conform to the will of God in the future. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. It's a future tense verb. Jesus here, he's making a prediction for us. But a prediction from Jesus, it isn't like a prediction from you or a prediction from me. When Jesus makes a prediction, we can take it as a promise. The hunger and thirst that's present within us now won't be totally satisfied in the here and now, but we can know for certain that Jesus will totally satisfy that longing in the future. That person who brings the cup of cold water to someone who's thirsty, or the person who who offers a meal to the hungry, that person in some ways they deserve to be praised. Brothers and sisters, how much more can we offer our praise and our worship to Christ knowing that he will satisfy our desire, our hunger and our thirst for righteousness. He satisfies it in some sense now and we know for certain can take it to the bank that it will be fully satisfied in the future. And this, this isn't completely clear from, from the context, but I think what's being communicated is uh, we'll be fully satisfied for our desire for righteousness when Christ returns. When he returns, we will taste, uh, we'll drink and we'll eat in the fullest sense of our desire for righteousness. How beautiful are those words of Jesus? How beautiful are those words? That's just one verse. Let's look at verse seven. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Here again, Jesus He's taking our normal way of thinking and he's turning it completely upside down. Mercy is not something that's typically admired. Those who are merciful, they don't seem to get ahead in life. They get taken advantage of. The merciful get walked all over. Again, let's put ourselves in the position of those who are listening to Jesus as he says this. They're probably thinking, and maybe even some of you are thinking this way, Jesus, you don't understand. I have no future if I show mercy. If I forgive the debts that are owed to me, how am I gonna get ahead? Jesus, you don't understand. I can't, I can't, I'm not merciful. I can't be merciful. I can't get ahead if I'm merciful. My only hope is to be as ruthless as I can be. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Blessed are the merciful. Friends, mercy's for the downtrodden. Mercy's for the neglected and the despised. Mercy is for those who are hurting. People who exhibit mercy, they look at the hurting, they look at the broken, and they truly feel their pain. Sometimes we use that phrase, I feel your pain or uh, I feel you sort of as ways to say that we can relate to what that person is going through. Uh, someone might say they've had a really tough week at work or they're, they're struggling in their financial state and we may say something like, oh man, I, I feel your pain on that. 
We typically say that because we can relate. Maybe we've even been through that same situation ourselves. But how many of us say that because we truly feel the pain of that brother or sister? Merciful people see the hurting, they see the downtrodden, and they feel for them. They hurt for the hurting. You know, it's just so interesting how Matthew sort of structures his gospel and how he presents the Sermon on the Mount for us because we see Jesus uh, congratulating the merciful here in verse seven. And then there's at least, as far as I can tell, there's at least six other places in the gospel of Matthew where mercy is stressed. Some of them are even in Jesus's own parables. Uh, Jesus, think to the, a little bit further in the Sermon on the Mount, you think to the Lord's Prayer. Jesus emphasizes mercy for us there. And we're, we're gonna look more at depth in this in the coming months, but Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. He's talking about mercy. Friends, it's our deeds that actually demonstrate if we're merciful or not. We can say, I feel your pain, or I'm sorry you're going through that, but mercy is exhibited in action. So I have a couple questions for us to ask ourselves this morning. I think self-reflection can be a very useful practice. Ask yourself, how am I toward the downtrodden, the oppressed, the mistreated? Am I compassionate towards those who struggle? James, in a powerful statement in his letter, writes, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus, when he's talking about the final judgment in Matthew 25, he has a very sobering message for those who fail to show compassion and mercy. Now, this is, a, this is an important point I need to make here. When Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy, we have to be careful that we don't interpret that legalistically. Jesus isn't saying merciful people will receive mercy because of their merciful deeds. It's not what Jesus is saying. And our sort of natural way of hearing that is to think that is what Jesus is saying, but he's not. No, the truth is we exhibit mercy because we see the mercy that has been shown to us. Brothers and sisters, there is absolutely nothing in us that deserves the mercy of God. There is no one who deserves mercy. All of us have committed high treason against a holy God. We've rebelled against God, every single one of us. We all in our own way have said, my way is better. I'm going to do what I want. We are all guilty. No one is righteous not even one. But what has been God's response to our rebellion? Church, he has shown us mercy. He's shown us mercy in the person of Christ. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I don't know what you've been told or what you've heard about the Christian God. I don't know what you've been told about Jesus I don't know what you've heard from people maybe around you who are talking about Jesus, but there's one thing that I, I really want you to know. It's that Jesus extends his nail-scarred hands to you and says, come receive mercy. Come receive the mercy that you don't deserve. 
And we have plenty of Christians in here this morning that they need to be reminded of the exact same truth. Christ is constantly, now and forever, extending his mercy to you. Friends, we show mercy because we have been shown mercy. You know, we actually have uh, tangible ways and opportunities in our church to show mercy towards those who are struggling. We have a care team that meets financial and physical needs for people in our church and people in our community. Uh, maybe as, as you hear Jesus, uh, his words in, in Matthew chapter seven, maybe you're thinking, and I, I've been shown mercy, I wanna, I wanna show mercy. I encourage you to get involved in that team in some way. You can talk to me, you can talk to Randy. Uh, we would love, even one of our elders, we would love to get you involved with how you can be a part of what that care team is doing in our community. I even think an email went out this week about some ways that uh, you can serve and be involved in showing mercy, again, to people in our church and in the community. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's look, uh, let's look now at verse eight here. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now Jesus, he's not speaking strictly to morality here. Purity of heart is not just outward compliance to rules. You can be the most moral person in all the world and hate God in your heart. That was part of the struggle for the reformer Martin Luther. He was trying to conform his life to a strict moral code in an effort to be close to God. And in actuality, this created within him a hatred for God. Don't hear, blessed are the pure in heart, and think Jesus is saying, blessed are the moral. No, purity of heart is much deeper than that. The one who is pure in heart they, is the one who truly, they truly love God with all their heart. It's the one who can honestly say that Jesus is my treasure. The one who can honestly say that demonstrates they are pure in heart. That doesn't mean that they don't struggle with sin. Doesn't mean they don't wrestle with, with sinful patterns. But even in the midst of that, they can say honestly and they know in their heart, Jesus is my treasure. Purity of heart will lead to conformity to the will of God in our lives. But morality does not equal purity of heart. That's not the formula. I wanna, I wanna make sure you see the difference there because that's important. Uh, if you have your Bibles open, turn over really quick to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. Or if, if you don't wanna turn there, you can just listen as I read a couple of verses. Psalm 24. I think that Jesus may have had this sort of in the back of his mind when he said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Let's... I'm gonna read it again. If you have it in front of you, look at it. If not, just listen to me as I read it. Psalm 24, verses three to six. Hear, hear these words from the psalmist. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Friends, it's fellowship with God. Fellowship with God is the reward for the pure of heart. 
Our fellowship with God and the purity of our hearts, they are directly related. For those of us who belong to Jesus, our union with him can never be severed, can never be separated. In John 10, uh, 10, 28, when Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand, that was an emphatic statement. And I would argue it's even more apparent in the original language that Jesus is saying, it is literally impossible for the sheep to be snatched out of my hand. I say all that to say our union with Christ can never be severed, but our communion with him, it is disrupted by sin. Scripture tells us this, but we also just sort of sense this within our spirits, don't we? There's conviction when we sin. We, we feel a, a separation from the Lord. That conviction is a gift because it, it reminds us that we need to repent. Conviction doesn't lead to doesn't have to lead for guilt, doesn't have to lead to guilt for the Christian. No, conviction leads to repentance and the clarity with which we're able to gaze upon the God of the universe. That clarity is distorted by unrepentant sin. But as our hearts are consumed with love for God, our love for God, it, it naturally overflows into our actions, which means we see God more clearly and we enjoy communion with him more fully. By the way, the promise that Jesus makes to the pure in heart, that they will see God, that's absolutely crazy. That's a crazy promise from Jesus. Remember, God told Moses, and, and the Jews who were listening, they would, they would have been very aware of this. God told Moses, you can only look at my back when I pass by. They'd have been thinking, if Moses can only get a glimpse, how am I going to see God? How's that even possible? But Jesus says, those who love God, those who are pure in heart, they will see him. Christian, what a promise that is for you today. What a promise that is for me. The pure in heart will see God. Finally, let's take a look at verse nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You know, peaceful and a peacemaker, those are not the same thing. Someone can be a peaceful person and not be a peacemaker. It's pretty rare to find someone who, uh, who keeps the peace. That's not common. People seem to get a, a rush from sort of stirring the pot. Keeping peace is uncommon, but I think it's even more rare to find someone who actively seeks to make peace when anger and dissension, a spirit of disunity are present. For those who are citizens of heaven, for those of us who belong to the kingdom of God, peacemaking should be in our DNA. We should seek to cultivate peace wherever we go. Paul in his letter to the Romans writes, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And as ambassadors and representatives of the kingdom of God, peace is just part of our agenda. You know, part of the reason the gospel is good news is because it brings peace to those who receive it. Not just peace in a practical sense, like I'm just, I'm really feeling at peace today, but peace with God. Now, I don't think Jesus here or in supporting verses, I don't think Jesus is arguing for sort of a, a total pacifism. I think what Jesus is saying 
is that peacemakers have a special relationship with God. There is true acceptance in God's family for those who reconcile others to God by introducing them to the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus himself. Church, it's Satan that sows discord, confusion, disunity. God's children make peace. When Jesus says that peacemakers shall be called sons of God, he's saying that peacemakers, they take on the character of God. By the way, how, how refreshing are people who bring peace? It just changes everything for the better when people are committed to making peace. Now, this, this doesn't mean that confrontation can never occur. Sometimes confrontation is necessary. It's good. But did you know that, that confrontation or, or addressing an issue can actually be done in an effort to make peace? Sometimes things need to be confronted in an effort to be a peacemaker. But church, the best way, hear this, the best way to be a peacemaker is to practice forgiveness. Forgiveness facilitates peace. When we're practicing forgiveness, when we're, we're taking the message of forgiveness to others, we are living as peacemakers. And for this, Jesus, the high king of heaven, he calls us blessed. Friends, the good life or the blessed life or the best life, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't really look like what we're tempted to envision. In fact, it really looks a lot like the complete opposite of what we're, we typically think. The good life, it looks like being poor in spirit. It looks like being hungry and thirsty for righteousness. It looks like being pure in heart. Life in the upside down kingdom of God, it just looks different, but it comes with truly, truly unfathomable promises. If I can just speak on a personal level here for a second, one of my favorite things to do in preparation to preach is I just get to read over and over and over again the particular passage of scripture that we're in. I mean, that's for all of us who preach. Hours go into just reading a passage and trying to understand what's being said, what's being communicated, what, what matters here for, for you all, for the body. But the longer, the longer I read through these Beatitudes this week, and just, I've used, I've used this phrase of trying to sit under them. That's what I tried to do. Just read and, and, and feel the weight of what Jesus is saying. The longer you do that, the more you do that, the more you just want to worship him. You just want to worship him. You just want to praise him. You want to live for him. It creates in you a, a deep longing to see his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As, as we go through this Sermon on the Mount, I invite you to sit under the words of Jesus. It's almost like who's ever preaching, we could just read whatever Jesus says and go sit down. Like what he's saying is the most important thing. So as we, as we go through these three chapters of scripture, read it over and over and over again. Read the Beatitudes three, four, five, six times. Read them more than that. Memorize what Jesus is saying. He actually, it's actually the way Jesus says it was done in a way so that people could remember it. I don't have a great memory, but it, it's, it's pretty easy to kind of remember the follow the blessed are you to follow those. Praise, praise Jesus for what he promises. 
Praise him for what he's done. Now, every Sunday, we get the joy of celebrating communion together. And I I do want to remind you that this is a celebratory meal. We're celebrating all that Christ has done for us. We're celebrating what he's doing in in the here and now. We're celebrating that he's coming back for us. If you're a professing follower of Jesus Christ, communion is open for you this morning. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here with us. Uh, This communion meal is not open to you, but that doesn't mean that these next few minutes have to be a waste for you. I invite you to think about the words of Jesus. Think about what you've heard today. Consider the claims that Jesus is making on what it truly means to be blessed. I want you to know that we would love to talk with you about what it means to be a Christian, what Christianity is all about. If you're here today and you just have questions, we want to talk to you. Me or Randy, any of the folks you've seen up front, we want to talk to you about what it means to know Jesus, what it means to be a Christian. Or again, if you just have questions. So please grab one of us before you leave. Communion will be served at two stations here in the front. And as the band plays, you are welcome to come up and receive communion as you feel led. Well, I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to continue on in our worship this morning together. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the invitation that you extend to us to live the good life, to live the blessed life, to live our best life, God. We thank you that you extend an invitation to us. Father, I thank you that what it means to be blessed doesn't look like what the world tells us it means to be blessed. For those of us who have pursued that, we know that it doesn't satisfy We know that it doesn't fill us. Oh, Jesus, but you fill us. You satisfy us. Father, I pray for us this week, Lord, as we go through our weeks, that we will be able to hear you saying to us, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you shall be satisfied. We'll be able to hear, blessed are the merciful, for you shall receive mercy. Or that we'll hear you saying, blessed are the peacemakers. And then we'll hear you saying the other one that I can't remember right now. Father, help us to hear that from you. God, I pray that you will continue to bless our worship this morning. Thank you that you are here present with us by the power of your spirit. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.